This is HPR episode 2358 entitled Amateur Radio Roundtable Hash 2. It is hosted by Mirwi and is about 46 minutes long and carries a clean flag. The summary is two of us trying to explain stuff mostly off the cuffs. This episode of HPR is brought to you by anhonesthost.com. Get 15% discount on all shared hosting with the offer code HPR15. That's HPR15. Better web hosting that's honest and fair at anhonesthost.com. Hello, Hacker Public Radio. This is Michael Delta Lima for Mike Golf Mike or Mervi with the second recording of the Amateur Radio Roundtable. And with me is Steve Kilo Delta Zero India Jolly Papa. Uh, yes, uh, that's me. I'm glad to be here with you and uh, <clears throat> hope maybe we can uh, do this a little bit more often. Yeah, definitely. And with more support from more people to make it more interesting. So we had. Uh, in the comments of our last uh, round table some questions and uh, we should try to, to answer some of them there was a question I would like to ask for for a detailed explanation of how a, the length of a frequency is measured two meters what frequency is most powerful and how modulation works so shall we start with the uh, wavelength. Uh, yeah, we can. Um, actually, Mr. X did a fairly decent job of covering that in uh, one of his recent episodes uh, with about the Baofeng radio, but uh, we can talk about it some more as well. Yeah, I think we will come to that topic in addition later. He did a very, very nice job in, in starting this series and blaming Ken for, for all of it, but he did a great job there. Yeah, that was, I, I thought that was kind of funny. Uh, this whole thing is Ken's fault. He's the one that's been asking for it. So, Anyway, uh, regarding wavelength, there's a couple different ways to look at it. So RF energy, radio frequency energy, is oscillating at some frequency. And uh, so the faster the frequency is, or the higher the frequency, the least amount of time it takes to cover one cycle. And this energy is traveling at approximately the speed of light. And so the amount of distance that it travels for the duration of one cycle, that's your wavelength, basically. And uh, the relationship is such that if you multiply the frequency in uh, cycles per second and the wavelength in meters, that should equal the velocity of the motion of the propagation of the energy, and that's about the speed of light. And so from a mathematical point of view, if you take the speed of light and divide it by the frequency, you get the wavelength. If you take the speed of light and divide it by the wavelength, you get the frequency. Does that make sense? Yes, totally. And the point is, uh, the speed of light is valid for vacuum and, and in close approximation for 
our air here on Earth, but not necessarily for all materials. So if you have some dielectric non-conductive material where the wave has to travel through, the wavelengths within this material may be different than, than uh, in, in vacuum, especially if it will be shorter. And if you have coaxial cable for conducting your RF energy, you will give, have a value for the velocity factor, which, which uh, is, a, is a measure for the slowdown of the uh, wave within the material of the coaxial cable. And you have to take this into account if you calculate length of cable for a certain wavelength, for, for the signal to, to travel a certain wavelength within the cable. Uh, yes, excellent point on that. Uh, the other thing I guess I was going to comment on this is that we use these wavelength designations kind of to label uh, frequency ranges. Obviously, there's only one frequency that is, say, two meters in length. But we refer to an entire band as the two-meter band, and the band is like a range of frequencies. And we do that just kind of for convenience. Uh, and so all of the frequencies in, say, the two-meter band, which, at least in the U.S. here, goes from about 144 megahertz to 148 megahertz, um, those are all approximately two meters in length um, in a, you know, going the speed of light. Uh, obviously, there's only one frequency that's exactly two meters. The other thing is, is we're not just terribly precise about it. Like, for example, if I told you that there is an amateur radio band called the 20-meter band, you might say, well, okay, so the speed of light, which is 300 million um, meters per second, divide that by 20 meters, that's going to give me about 15 or 150 million or 15 megahertz. Well the actual frequency range for the 20 meter band is like 14 megahertz to 14.35 megahertz. And so we're not being terribly accurate about that. It's not exactly 15 or anything like that, but it's just sort of a convenient way to refer to the band as being approximately two meters. And so if you, you hear us talk about the 20 meter band, the 80 meter band, we're not, re we're not being terribly precise about that, but it's just sort of that's approximately the wavelength of those frequencies. Yeah, exactly. And there is a two-meter amateur radio band. There is a two-meter commercial radio band. And they all refer to two meters or 70 centimeters or whatever as the ballpark figure for the frequency allocation close to that they have for the service. Uh, yeah, exactly. And, you know, the band's... Uh, may not even be identical, like even the amateur bands may not even be all completely identical from country to country or, or region to region. Uh, they, they tend to be pretty close, but uh, maybe not exactly. Yeah, for example, the two-meter amateur radio band here in Europe is 144 megahertz to 146 megahertz, and 70 centimeters goes from three, 330 to 340 megahertz. Okay, yeah, that's a little different. We have we have a couple extra megahertz in the U.S. Um, on the two-meter band, so, uh, so sure. I guess, I don't know, just something I thought of right now since we talked about amateur versus commercial and so on, and it's not really related to wavelength, but it's kind of interesting. Uh, you know, some of these allocations uh, for amateur radio use are designated pretty much exclusively for amateur radio. 
But then there's other bands where amateur radio is a secondary service. Um, and we actually overlap some other type of service and we're still allowed to use it, but we're not, uh, not supposed to interfere with the primary purpose of those frequencies. So that's just sort of an aside that uh, not everybody probably realizes. Yes, and we may have to accept or cope with interference from this primary user and may not complain about it. But the other way around, we should not interfere with them because they are entitled to complain. Yep, that's exactly right. So um, the commenter there asks, what is the most powerful frequency? How would you respond to that? It depends. It depends on the purpose and and. Different frequencies have different propagation properties, and depending on what you want to achieve, one can be extremely powerful and the other completely useless and the other way around. I'm so <coughs> so less active on, on the shortwave frequency band, so I have not really a very, very good experience which bands to use for what communication distances, but the lower frequency bands say 80 meters 3.5 megahertz is more for uh, closer closer range communication because of the uh, <clears throat> more steep angle for uh, of reflection and the damping during daytime and middle frequencies 7 megahertz 10 megahertz maybe maybe usable for longer range communication during during the days and the, the higher frequencies only in in certain times of the year and so on can you elaborate on this, Steve? Well, yeah, I mean, that's that's basically uh, exactly what I was going to say, too. <clears throat> the, the whole issue of propagation is one that, um, it's, a, it's a very deep subject, and uh, it's something that you can really, really get detailed into. Um, but propagation is... The propagation or how the, the energy travels through the atmosphere is dependent on many factors. And frequency is one of those factors. But also you have things like the time of day, the time of year. Uh, what all it, it all has to do with the type of ionization that is happening in the in certain layers of the atmosphere called the troposphere, I think, or the ionosphere, I guess is what ionosphere. And so if conditions are right, a, a radio signal will go up into the ionosphere and it will then bend back down towards the Earth. And if it does that, then from where you are to where it comes back down to the Earth, you can potentially communicate. If it doesn't bend back down, if it gets absorbed or if it goes out into space, then you can't communicate um, on that frequency at that particular time. And since the ionosphere is constantly in flux, um, there's no guarantee that at any given time you'll be able to communicate on any given frequency. Um, but there are some rules of thumb. Um, generally speaking, 20 meters, for example, is good during the daytime but not particularly good at night. Uh, 40 meters is kind of almost opposite of that. It tends to maybe be better at night than during the day, although there's some overlap. Uh, some of these are very highly influenced by the sunspot cycle, and because the sun, the sun is really what does a lot of. Um, it, it, it's it's uh, 
important for the activation of the ionosphere. So at different points in the sunspot cycle, the ionosphere is going to be behaving differently. And so during high sunspot cycles, you can often get to things like 10 meters and 12 meters and 15 meters. But in low sunspot times, like we are right now, uh, it's pretty rare for those frequencies to work. And so to say, to ask which is the most powerful frequency, it just depends on what you're trying to do, how far you're trying to communicate, uh, and uh, what time of the year, what time of the day, how the sunspots are, all of those kinds of things. So, I don't know, that's my rambling answer to the question. Yeah, it was pretty pretty inclusive. And there is a maximum usable frequency and the, also a, a lowest usable frequency, which is the, the frequency, <clears throat> which, the highest frequency, which is uh, scattered back at the ionosphere to, this, to the Earth or the lowest frequency where this backscattering uh, works. And these frequencies change over, over daytime, over insulation and so on. And they are continuously monitored and, and tested by certain observatories. And you can, can find graphs on the internet showing for the current situation the these maximum and minimum usable frequencies for uh, the propagation path over the ionosphere. Yep, that's correct. And then, of course, when you get into the higher frequencies up into what we call the VHF and UHF range, um, those frequencies really, except for in very, very rare cases, uh, don't ever bounce back from the ionosphere. And so like for two meters and 70 centimeters and some of those bands, they're really almost only good um, for a line of sight communication. So the transmitting antenna and the receiving antenna have to basically in the line of sight of each other with not terribly much obstruction in between. And so because of the curvature of the Earth, that limits how far you can communicate because if you start to go over the horizon, um, you no longer can communicate using those frequencies. Um, we sometimes enhance that by setting up a repeater. And so you're talking, you're actually talking to a repeater, which you are line of sight with, and somebody else can listen to that repeater because they're in line of sight, but the, the talker and the listener themselves may line of sight from each other. Now, occasionally, something really weird will happen in the uh, in the ionosphere or other parts of the of the atmosphere that will allow some of these higher frequencies to travel much much further distances. But that's rare and it's pretty much unpredictable. Yeah, and the property that VHF, UHF, and higher frequencies can penetrate the ionosphere allows us to use them for satellite communication and, and such. And yeah, these these uh, rare propagation conditions, there are times of the year where those are more frequent or where they can, can happen. And uh, there is something called sporadic E. There's the E layer in the ionosphere. And in some, some certain conditions, it gets reflective for VHF, for uh, two meters frequencies. And then you can get... 2,000 kilometers distance stations uh, to have signals like like your neighboring neighboring guy, and uh, I've I've experienced this myself, and, and it's it's really really impressive. And you can can communicate with a couple of watts output power. It doesn't matter if the conditions are are there. Transmit power is is not really the the limiting factor, and it's it's impressive. Uh, yeah, I. Uh... 
I remember a time when just all of a sudden out of the blue, um, I was able to hear uh, on two meters or something, I think, I was able to hear somebody from several states away. And it just normally you can't, but yeah, it's always kind of interesting and everybody always kind of jumps on that and tries to get that long distance contact in because it's, it's relatively rare. Um, and yeah, as far as power goes, I mean, in many cases, power is is the secondary factor. Um, I mean, it's possible to make communications thousands of miles with very low power. Now, if you have more power, you tend to have a better signal, better signal-to-noise ratio, that kind of thing. But it's not really the limiting factor. The limiting factor is just how the propagation for that frequency is at that particular time. And if it's good propagation, it takes very little power to uh, get a signal that's readable um, you know, over a very, very long distance. Okay, now shall we dive into modulation? Yeah, that was the next part of that question. Um, how do you want to handle that? I hear Ken, Ken asking, what's modulation in the first place? So uh, let's try to get hold of that. So modulation basically is the the act of putting some information on an RF RF signal. There are several kinds of modulation schemes. The most, most familiar for most people is amplitude modulation, AM, known from broadcast radio, frequency modulation, known from, from radio stations on the, on the VHF frequencies. And for, for amplitude modulation, you simply have a carrier wave, the, the RF signal, and you change the signal amplitude according to the, to your modulation signal, which normally is, in our case, a voice signal. So if the voltage representing your voice goes up, you increase the amplitude of the of the carrier wave. If, if uh, the voltage goes down, you reduce the uh, amplitude. And on the receiver side, you do a demodulation step where you recover these changes in amplitude, convert them back to to a changing voltage, amplify and filter it, and you have your, your voice back. And for frequency modulation, the basic idea is you have a carrier wave and wiggle the frequency of this wave according to your uh, modulation signal. So if, if the voltage goes up in your, in your voice signal, you change the frequency towards one direction, and if the voltage goes down, you change the frequency in the other direction. On the, and on the receiver, receiver side, you can just detect those changes in frequency and convert them back to a voltage signal, which will be representing your, your voice signal. And there are mo many, many uh, more more complex uh, modulation schemes, but these are, these are the most most familiar ones and, and uh, the most simple ones to understand. Uh, yeah, that's a pretty good description as far as I'm concerned. Just to clarify, the carrier that you're talking about is basically a signal it's the carrier starts out as a signal that is of a, a single frequency and a uniform voltage basically so it's, it's just a very pure signal and then you're just modifying that based on some information and if that information is is voice then you are modifying the carrier relative to that voice fluctuation and voltages and stuff. If the information you want to pass is digital, then you mo then you modify that carrier uh, based on the ones and zeros that you're trying to uh, transmit. And then the receiver just is able to uh, 
identify and and that those modifications to the carrier and pull that information back off. Um, and like you say, there's there's a ton of different schemes for how you modify a carrier um, to carry information, whether it's voice or digital or whatever. And um, I mean, that's basically how it works. The obviously the transmitter and the receiver have to be in agreement in terms of. I'm modulating this using an AM amplitude modulation technique, so you have to be listening using an AM technique of demodulation. It doesn't work to do AM to FM or FM to AM or anything like that. You have to be in agreement. But uh, it, it's really kind of magical that it works, but it does quite reliably. Yeah, of course. And we probably should be uh, mentioning also single sideband because it's the most important voice modulation on on shortwave frequencies <laughs> although it's uh, more complicated to, to explain so if you have a carrier wave and mix it in a, in a rf frequency mixer with a audio signal you will get the carrier wave the audio uh, and the difference in some of the audio frequency to the carrier wave so if you have 10 megahertz carrier and one kilohertz audio signal you will have after the mixer uh, 10 megahertz one kilohertz and 10 megahertz minus one kilohertz as, as signals and depending on the type of mixer the 10 megahertz signal itself will be suppressed somewhat and then if you, the frequency is changing you will have the change in the in, in both side bands the 10 megahertz plus the audio frequency and 10 megahertz Minus the audio frequency, you will have the this this frequency change of the audio signal in both on both sides of the carrier. And as both carriers uh, sidebands carry the same information, one is redundant and uh, is cut off by a filter. So you just take take the signal wiggling on on one sideband. You cut off the carrier. You cut off the uh, second sideband and only transmit the information from from one sideband, which is much more energy efficient. And on the receiver side, you have to add this carrier, which is tuned in by your radio, and uh, you will get back the audio signal and uh, can amplify and, and filter it. And you have the, the information back you're, you're used for transmission. I was wondering if you were going to try to describe single sideband. It is a little bit tough to, to describe, especially without like a whiteboard or something to draw it out. But you did a pretty good job. I mean, basically, a standard AM amplitude modulation scheme contains the resulting signal of amplitude modulation contains redundant information. And if you transmit that, you, you, you have to use quite a bit more bandwidth to transmit the redundant information. So single sideband attempts to um, remove the parts of the signal that aren't needed for demodulation. So you don't use up as much bandwidth in transmitting, but still can get the signal. Now it has a little bit of a different sound. Um, it, it, it sounds different kind of than regular AM does, but, um, but it's a much more efficient uh, type of modulation uh, than AM. And so it's very popular uh, in amateur radio Uh, communications as well as some other types of communications as well. Yeah, I think the sound is, is basically due to due to the uh, band limitation, the frequency limitations. 
you use for for having a narrow channel on the on the frequency spectrum for transmission. If you modulate a single sideband with a without uh, the sideband filter very very narrow, you can can achieve good audio quality quality or better audio quality than than normal. But you will of course uh, require more bandwidth on the RF band, and normally rece receivers will not be accommodating uh, this this signal because they are just tuned for for the narrow band. And uh, going back to, to amplitude modulation, it's also not so efficient in, in uh, power-wise because for having room to react to increasing voltage of the modulation signal and decreasing voltage, you have to have a set point at half the amplitude. So if your modulation signal is completely quiet, you're transmitting half the output power of your transmitter just to have the, the, the bias level in your receiver and you're just increasing the power to double the power if you have full 100% modulation uh, for the maximum voltage you can can modulate or transmit you're having full power and for the minimum voltage you can transmit you have almost no no power you, you reduce it almost to zero but for any quiet signal you're transmitting half the, the RF output power just to have the, the bias level there which is not very very efficient and for for sideband single sideband the loudness of your signal is in the in the power you put into this this signal and if it's quiet it, there's no output power ah very good point i had kind of forgotten about that from a power point of view it's been quite a while actually since i uh, since i studied uh the single sideband in detail uh, but uh, now that you say that yep you're absolutely right about that yeah, I think we should elaborate a little bit more on, on sideband in a in a future show, or someone can do a, a show about this with with audio examples and and how to tune in a station and so on. I think it would be best suited for this format. Yep, I agree with that. Sounds good to me. Okay, another idea about doing shows is why not just record tuning around the band and explaining what you hear. I I was once listening to a QSO and and then I thought I. I wish I recorded this QSO. It was some European and the US station not, signal uh, quality was was good, and and they had were having just a nice chit chat, and and would have been so great for just recording this and explaining what they do, what they talk about, and and, and all the proceedings they they follow. Yeah, that'd be a good idea. Uh, you could do that for lots of different types of. Communications, you could, I mean, lots of different kinds of amateur communications. You could potentially record maybe uh, a net type of communication as well as just a rag chew. It also might be kind of interesting to uh, record um, what some of the digital modes sound like from an audio point of view. Uh, so, yeah, that's a good idea. Yeah, okay, maybe we can deviate from, from the schedule right here now and talk about uh, ideas about <coughs> ideas how to do shows when i think about explaining stuff i encounter those rabbit holes like like mr x called them and and he had the same problem explaining something and then th there are terms which needed to be explained first or at least in, in con connection with that and identifying those those points and giving them their own show maybe a short one where you can elaborate on a, on a certain fact and and explain them Two in particular I'm thinking about is one about the Maidenhead grid locator system, which will be basically reading out the Wikipedia article because it's so so good. 
and uh, one about uh, the RST report system and S meters and explaining some of those those aspects in a separate show so we can can just reference them later. Yeah, that's a good idea. Would it be helpful maybe um, on our Etherpad show notes here that we that if we maybe uh, maintain a list of some of those topics and if somebody feels like making a show and doesn't really know what to talk about, take a look at that list and, and elaborate a little bit on uh, one of those things. Would that be helpful? I think it would be a great idea because I'm not, not uh, short of ideas what to talk about, but getting it done. <laughs> well, yes, that's for sure. And since we're talking about show ideas, um, you had, I believe, brought up the idea um, on the email list Ham's maybe doing uh, what's in my shack, what's in my ham shack type um, episode. And I will let you know that I have an episode of, on that topic almost complete. I haven't uploaded it yet. Actually, I haven't recorded it yet, but I've done some show notes. So I am planning to do that one. And I hope uh, some others will do that as well. Yeah, that's great. I'm looking forward to that. And I I'm, will I'm, not be the only one. All right, well, is there anything more on that subject, or should we talk a little bit about the Doppler effect? Yeah, we can uh, go on to the Doppler effect. All right, so there was a comment um, that um, related to the amateur amateur radio satellite, and uh, this was a show that... uh, Christopher did, and I'd hoped that he was going to be on this uh, roundtable, but apparently he wasn't able to make it. Um, And one of the things he mentioned is that when uh, talking to a satellite, you need to take into effect, into account the Doppler effect. And uh, so what is that? And I'll I'll take a crack at describing it, um, and then I'll see what you have to say about it as well. Uh, So when you have... The source of transmission, so in this case the satellite is transmitting, you're listening. Well, in addition to transmitting, that satellite is also moving um, into, you know, rather rather rapidly. And so as that satellite is coming towards you, as it sends out the RF energy that you're going to pick up, it's kind of catching up with that as it's transmitting, it's also partially catching up to where that um, energy is at. And what that does is it has a tendency to compress the radio waves, if you will, which make them go up in frequency. And so the frequency that you have to listen on is needs to be just a little bit higher than the frequency that the satellite is actually transmitting in order to receive it properly because that the, the frequency is, is going up because of kind of the compression of those radio waves. Uh, and then the same thing happens in reverse when the satellite is going away from you. Um, it's separating itself from the energy that it's transmitting. And so you actually have to tune down, you can see a little bit, in order to properly pick it up. So how was that? You have a better way of describing it? No, not really. Was was a nice explanation. And the point is the effective speed of the satellite is the component towards you. So if the satellite is approaching close to the horizon, 
it has a high component of speed towards you. And if the satellite is exactly above you, the movement is perpendicular to, to your position and, and, and the speed change relative in your direction is, is small. So the Doppler effect or this frequency shift is minimal and is increasing in the, in the negative direction if the uh, satellite is uh, going away from your side. And I lost my thought right, right there. Uh, yeah, that's exactly correct. Now, a lot of times when people talk about Doppler effect, they're thinking about sound waves. And the most common example of that is you have a train going by and the train is blowing its horn or its whistle. As the train is coming towards you, the, the sound of that, of the, of, the, of the horn, is a higher pitch because of this Doppler effect. And as the train is going away from you, the pitch goes down um, because of the, the, low, the frequency of the, of the audio waves as they get to you has uh, decreased. Now, of course, sound waves tra travel at a much lower frequency than radio waves do. And so in radio, it takes a lot of motion. I mean, you have to be moving really fast for that Doppler effect to actually uh, play a role. Now, satellite is moving pretty fast, so it does play a role. Whereas, like, if you're driving in a car and you're transmitting to somebody that's at a fixed station, um, you know, that level of motion is not going to make, make any difference in terms of the perceptive frequency. You're just not going to notice the difference at that speed. Since the frequencies are so much higher, the, the, the speed of travel has to be a lot higher uh, to, uh, to play a role. But it's basically the same concept in those cases. Yeah, we will, we will put a link to the Wikipedia article on, on Doppler effect in the show notes. They have a lot of animated illustrations and the great explanations there and the point i wanted to make christopher was wondering in his in his episode for some satellites he, the doppler effect was bigger than for others and the reason is some satellites have transponders that convert an input signal on vhf on 145 megahertz something to a uhf output signal on 435 megahertz And some uh, satellites have transponders working the other way around, converting 435 megahertz to 145 uh, megahertz. And the Doppler effect for a given uh, speed of the satellite scales with frequency. So if you're looking at 145 megahertz, the Doppler effect has a certain frequency shift. And if you're looking at 435 megahertz, which is about three times the, the frequency, The Doppler effect is three times as, as, as much in frequency shift for the, for the same speed of the satellite. So if you have a satellite that has an output on, on 435 megahertz, the Doppler effect on this output signal will be higher than, than on, the, on the other uh, transponder. And if you have a frequency modulation transponder, this, this Doppler effect is not so critical. You can compensate for it in, in, in slow steps but if you have a single sideband transponder where where the frequency shift also impacts the audio frequency tone you're hearing directly it's it's much more more difficult to keep keep up with retuning your radio to uh, keep the frequencies right and some transponders have inverting mode where where, you, where the 
input frequency is one sideband uh, direction and the output frequency is the other sideband direction. So the Doppler effect on the input and output frequency of the satellite will partially compensate. So the overall effect is, is less. All right, those are some good points. So the, the magnitude of the Doppler effect is changes with different frequencies. Uh, so that's that's worth knowing. And then, yes, the modulation um, also affects how much the Doppler effect is going to affect you and uh, how you go about compensating for that. So, uh, yeah, that, that's, those are good, uh, good points and not ones that I had quite thought through myself. So that's great. And if you're telling, telling rubbish, please correct us, record a show on this, or at least comment. Uh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. You know, some of these topics uh, you can get really in depth. I mean, the Doppler effect, modulation, um, all of those kind of things, uh, velocity of uh, propagation, all the things that we were talking about, you can uh, you can get into great detail uh, and understanding. But I suppose it's also worth pointing out that you don't have to be an expert in these things in order to be an amateur radio operator. Uh, yeah, some of some of the basics that we've talked about are on the test. And you kind of have to know in order to get your license. But the good thing is, is if you are a ham and you are, you know, transmitting and operating, you have a better context in which you can learn about and study some of the intricacies of these things. Uh, whereas if you if you don't have that, then it's more just academic. And uh, so that's just one of the advantages of being a ham. You, you have some sort of context for, for looking into these details a little, bit, uh, a little bit more in depth. Yeah, right. The point, I'm, I'm so inactive on, on shortwave that I don't know what propagation is best in what direction at, at what time. But if you're a regular operator on those frequencies, you will just know if I want to talk to my friend in, in that country at that at that time, I better use this frequency band or the other one. And uh, yes, you have to, to learn some things for the test to prove that you are willing to learn and, and, and you're able to, to get gather that knowledge. But then you, you just have to operate and, and work with it and learn by doing and dive into what you're interested in. And, and that's, that's the beauty of it. Yep, that's exactly right. Uh, just don't think you have to know it all in order to get started. Learn the basics, get started, and then then learn those things that are of interest to you as you decide what types of operations you're more interested in doing. And the the available things are incredibly wide. I mean, no matter no matter who you are, you can find something of interest in the hobby. So it's a great a great place to start and uh, learn more about these details. Yeah, I think the amateur radio is the broadest hobby you can ever ever have because you can have three, four, five people meeting and they all are hams, but but they all have virtually not overlapping areas of interest and, and only maybe meeting up on, on the VHF local frequency for, for a local chat and for, for experience exchange and so on. Yep, that's exactly right. All right, so was that kind of all of the notes that we had? Um one of the people that was going to be here is going to report maybe from uh, their experience at the Dayton Hamvention, but uh, that person's not here. Um, 
Hamvention, that's one of those things I'd, I'd love to go to sometime. Um, and I'm not just terribly far away from it. I, that happens in Ohio near the near the town of Dayton. Um, and it's like the world's largest ham fest, basically. And I live in Kansas, and so it's like, you know, a good day's drive. Uh, but I've never taken the opportunity um, to go. And someday, someday I'm going to. But uh, I guess that's about all we probably have to say about yeah, there's the, the Friedrichshafen um, ham radio uh, fair here in Germany, which is Europe's biggest biggest amateur radio convention, and, and I'm usually participating each each year, and it's always great great fun with the with camping at the at the parking area beside the the, the fairground and meeting people and yeah I I'm looking forward to to go there this year. Actually, that's probably another one of these good uh, rabbit hole topics. Uh, just the, the idea of a ham fest in general. What is a ham fest and what kind of things do you, do you see when you go to a ham fest or that kind of thing? And uh, I suppose if somebody even wanted to do a show where they like you know, walked around at a ham fest and interviewed some people and and uh, talked a lot, kind of live about what they were seeing, that would be a really cool show to listen to as well. Yeah, I intended to, to do some recording last year, but it didn't happen, and I'm not making any promises. Well, it sounds like a great idea if, uh, if you can do it. Um, in sort of a related topic, um, for those of us in the U.S. and Canada, North America area, we have a kind of a pretty big event coming up here in the next week and a half, and that is the ARRL Field Day. So the ARRL is the U.S. Um, organization for amateur radio, uh, kind of national organization. And every year, the fourth weekend of the month of June, there is this thing called Field Day. And it's a 24-hour period of time when uh, clubs and individuals uh, go out and kind of practice uh, setting up in the, as you might for like doing emergency communications and you talk to other stations. It's kind of a contest. It's kind of a social activity. It, it, it's a wide range of things. Well, anyways, I'm planning to participate in field day this year, and I'm not promising exactly, but I was thinking it might be kind of fun to do some recordings out of field day and make a show out of that as well. Sounds great, yes. We should start this list of of ideas, shows we (laughs) might do one day, uh, because we can just throw all the the ideas in there and maybe, maybe inspire people to do it. Yeah, I think that'd be a good idea. I have a list of that. Of my, for, of my own, and I will probably never deplete that list, but uh, having sort of a central list um, on this general topic might be helpful to uh, some people that would like to uh, like to do a show and maybe not know quite what to do it on. Yeah, those lists. But maybe maybe it's helpful for, for getting shows. All right, so is there anything else that we need to talk about this time around? I think we covered all the, the questions so far, and we do not need to to drag it out too long. Uh, one question about uh, having this riddle we, we uh, wrote about in, in the on the mailing list. I didn't prepare anything for th- today, but do we want to have it in, in the future? To say uh, every every roundtable have some riddle with a with an, a digital modulated or any modulated signal where people can can decode some 
some uh, text or something and and enter it in a in a page to to get get confirmation that they are right. Um, I guess that'd be all right. I uh, I hadn't really thought too much about it. I'm not sure how many people would uh, would find that interesting. I suppose you know if you would find that interesting, make a comment to this show and uh, and indicate that uh, that would be interesting to you. Uh, I'm not familiar enough with some of those things that I'd have a hard time figuring out uh, a riddle of that sort, I think myself, even though I have a little experience with it. So it might be a little bit beyond what uh, most of the listenership would be interested in. But if I'm wrong about that, uh, comment and then something we could do. Yeah, it doesn't have to be very, very complicated. I'm just thinking maybe uh, just in Morse code or radio teletype encoding or whatever psk31 or something more more strange but still still decodable with, with the common software tools let's say this one this way and then you can can have an hbr on the hbr side uh, an entry form where you say ham radio uh, roundtable episode something and I decoded these two words, and then it says, uh, "Congratulations, you are the the fifth person to to decode the text," or something around along these these lines. So, if you're you're interested in in doing something like this, please let us know, and I hope that we will have a, a next roundtable sooner than 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 this one. Uh, yeah, um, I agree. I'm uh, I'm open to doing more of these at a little bit more frequent. Uh, time frame if uh, we can get other people involved that'd be great i mean and uh if uh, if you're not a ham and you just are interested in the subject uh we'd love to have you be part of the round table as well because you could ask us some questions that uh you know we might not necessarily think of so uh anybody's welcome to uh, join these round tables and uh the communication as to when and how we're going to do it seems to be happening on the HPR email list. So if you're not already on that list, you probably want to get on that list and then just uh, join in when uh, when we do another one. Yeah, for the general topic, shall we just schedule the next recording in about two months and, and think about releasing this show as soon as we get it edited and, and normally at least one month, month after recording to have it released and, and then there's four weeks time for for questions and comments and then have already scheduled uh, the the next recording so that would be sometime in mid-august uh, that would be fine for me okay then let's let's try to to get it get it sorted out earlier so i hope listeners will still enjoy this in spite of just us two rambling more or less but i enjoyed it, it was a nice show and i hope for for the next one um, I agree. Uh, sounds good, and uh, we'll see you every, uh, see you next time. This is Steve KD Zero IJP uh, saying seven three, and uh, have a good day. Yeah, bye bye, Cheerio from Delta Lima for Mike Golf, Mike Michael. You've been listening to Hacker Public Radio at hackerpublicradio.org. We are a community podcast network that releases shows every weekday, Monday through Friday. Today's show, like all our shows, was contributed by an HBR listener like yourself. If you ever thought of recording a podcast, then click on our contribute link to find out how easy it really is. 
Eka Public Radio was founded by the Digital Dog Pound and the Infonomicon Computer Club and is part of the binary revolution at binrev.com. If you have comments on today's show, please email the host directly, leave a comment on the website or record a follow-up episode yourself. Unless otherwise stated, today's show is released under a Creative Commons Attribution Sharealike 3.0 license.